So I am uh, fresh off of um, a family uh, vacation, and um, you learn a lot about your family when you're on vacation together, especially when you're traveling with uh, young kids. Uh, we had an unbelievable time, uh, mostly because uh, there were several times where our family uh, was uncontrollably laughing. Uh, I want to just share one of those times with you. Uh, my youngest son, Maddox, uh, he's um, God's retribution on me in a lot of ways. And um, we're all coming off the beach uh, as a family. And you know how, you know, you get sandy. I'm not a big fan of sandy feet. Okay, it's not something I wake up at night dreaming about. All right, so uh, typically on the beach, which I love, I can't wait to get the sand washed off my feet so I can put my nice pumas back on. And so you guys know how this works. There's oftentimes some kind of beach house with a hose extended coming off to, you know, be there to wash your feet. So my youngest son, who's four, we're all kind of, you know, waiting for uh, the, the thing to wash our feet off. And, uh, and at this particular station, there's a hose attached to the uh, water hydrant. And typically, you guys have seen this, there's like a, it's like a little shower thing. You just kind of like stick your feet. Well, on this one, it was a hose. And so for whatever reason, we thought it was fitting that Maddox would be the one uh, to hold uh, the hose. And so he, he holds the hose, and about 10 seconds later, I see literally this happen. I see this little smirk arise. And this dude, my little four-year-old, he turned this hose and just started hosing like our entire family, fully clothed, like we weren't in swimsuits. This is like a night we were out for dinner. We had stopped by, you know, the beach for some nice sunset time, and he just turns it on us, right? Well, me and Avery run for a rental car, and we get behind the driver's door, right? And so we're like ducking in, and it, he's hosing the rental car, and water is going in the rental car, right? My son Dawson has not retreated, okay? And so he's literally just like taking it, right? And he's laughing. I'm watching this whole thing. I am hyperventilating. I'm laughing so hysterically, right? My wife, meanwhile, is just sitting in the passenger seat of the car. I don't even know how she got there and didn't get a part of all this. It's like she put Maddox up to it, right? Well, this is my son, Maddox. Then I started, after the story, going back to our pictures from the trip, and I wanted to show you a few of these. All right, here's one of them. This is Maddox on the left, okay? It's like, it's like the other two are, you know, like calm, say cheese. Uh, look at this next one. Here's uh, the Sigma selfie. Look at Maddox in the back. What is he doing, Right? I don't know, it's like a mixture of constipated, be angry. And then, and then there's this picture, all right? This, uh, we were too cheap to buy, to buy, the, the, you know, to buy the actual image uh, on Splash Mountain. All the four of us, our mouths are open, and Maddox, look, he's just chilling, right? Like, what's, <laughs> what's the big deal, right? <laughs> even me, I mean, I, I don't even, uh, like it was scary or something. Now, <laughs> you learn a lot about your family. The other thing I learned and I think many of you females fit into this category as well. My little daughter, uh, eight years old, Avery, cowgirl tonight, um, she is obsessed with shells, okay? You get her on the beach, and she just goes into, like, focus production mode, right? How many shells can I acquire? What colors will they be? Are any of the rest of you females like this? Okay, a few that are willing to admit, and uh, some liars, and that's okay. We'll talk about that tonight. Um, Listen, she just went into shell mode, so I got a picture of all the shells that she collected on this trip. Okay, there they are. This is all her, right? And I mean, you would, you would think these things are gold, but at one point, my, my daughter and I are walking on the beach, and she makes a statement 
that will forever stick with me. Here's why. Or, you know, dad and daughter time, sun is coming down, beautiful moment, Titanic theme song is playing. Um, and she says, Daddy, I just can't wait to find more shells. And it seems insignificant because it's something we say a lot. But I stopped in my tracks. She kept walking and talking, I might add. I didn't hear much after that. Because I was stuck on the words, I just can't wait. And then I started thinking about how much a part of our language that phrase is. I just can't wait to go on vacation. I just can't wait to go home from work today. I just can't wait to see my kids. I just can't wait to come to Matthias tonight. Like all of you said, I'm sure. Um, it's, it's pretty true, isn't it? We just can't wait. Listen, I know that I'm on the struggle bus of not being patient, okay? I, I really am not. I, I, I struggle with it deeply. Um, but as a culture, I think actually now I'm realizing how much of an epidemic our lack of patience or waiting on the Lord is. You see, I've been studying the golden calf for weeks. If you've been with us in Exodus, like, this is a focal story. Like, we've been waiting and waiting to get there. And the whole issue of chapter 32 in Exodus is the inability of people to wait. And so, if you've ever found yourself struggling to wait on God, then maybe tonight is for you. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Uh, to say that I am uh, obsessed with this passage would be an understatement. We're only going to cover 14 verses. We're going to break this up into two weeks. Um, there is probably uh, a week's worth of sermons that can come with this. Um, uh, tonight, we're going to try to get in as much as we can from 14 verses. So let's begin here. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. You remember who Aaron is? Okay, Moses has been up on the mountain. We'll see how long in a second. God and Moses have been hanging out. Do you guys remember who God says Aaron is going to be? Come on, who's he going to be? What role is he going to take? The high priest. He's going to be like the first major priest of the entire Israelite nation, and let's see what, what's happening while Moses is away, okay? The people gathered uh, themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make, because that's how we talk, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Hey, Aaron, make us some gods, plural, they leave the monotheistic uh, thought that there was one God, and that God was Yahweh, Yodhed, Vodhed, this a premise that, that God was above everything else, and now they've become Egyptian again. Uh, you see, where they left in Egypt, there was a God for everything. And so, so quickly now, they've reverted back to their ancient history. Remember, they spent over 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And their hearts are going back to this polytheistic, there's a God for everything mentality. Aaron, make for us some gods, and more specifically, up. 
Well, let's uh, remind ourselves of where these people were just a few days ago, shall we? Uh, in Exodus uh, 24, here's what happens, okay? Then he said to Moses, does God come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nahab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar? This is God's initial command for Moses to come up on the mountain, okay? Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So this is God's instructions. Moses is going to get to come all the way. The rest are going to kind of stay halfway, as it were, and then the people are going to stay all the way at the base of Mount Sinai, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered, get this, with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, Moses makes clear what God's commands were. The people in unison, in beautiful song, chant-like, say everything God has said, we will 100% do. Uh, it gets so intense. Look at this. Uh, later we see Moses goes up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day, he did God call to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Look at this. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain and the side of the people of Israel. And here's important, verse 18. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain. What? 40 days, 40 nights. His second Okay, time that we're gonna, he's going to be on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus 34, we'll see the second. 40 days is also significant in the life of Jesus because he was what for 40 days? Right? He fasted and prayed and then ultimately was tempted by Satan. We see in the early parts of Matthew. The people, 40 days later, in their impatience, ask Aaron to make gods for them. 40 days I mean, what in the world kind of commitment can get shaky after 40 days? How impatient can you be that after 40 days, you're ready to at least put to the side Yahweh in this monotheistic one God mentality and then thrust all of your energy into pursuit of something that you saw in Egypt was not real? Listen to this. Remember what they saw? All of the gods were what the plagues were based on in Egypt. God kept showing up all of these not gods in Egypt. Remember this, right? The God of the river. Oh, oh, what, you can't withhold the river from turning to blood? And God was like, boom, you know, water's blood. Oh, where's your God at now? God overshadowed these non-existent Egyptian gods over and over and over. How quickly and how idiotic do you have to be that you want to go back to a non-existent God who your God supposedly showed up? 40 days, actually, I, I think would give us a lot of credit. Don't you agree? You start looking at your own existence, your own life, your own relationship with the Lord, your own commitments, and 40 days seems like a marvel. Right? Like, haven't you ever celebrated 40 days? I mean, isn't there a book written like the 40 days of purpose or something, right? Is that a book? I'm just making it. Didn't Rick Warren write that, Right? It's like to make it 40 days. You guys know this in dieting, right? For me, if I can make a diet like 48 hours, I'm celebrating. You know what I mean? If I can go 48 hours without Diet Coke, like I am, I'm like, honey, I've, I've just broken the barrier, you know? I think God's going to do a work at this point, right? The, listen, these people go 40 days, find themselves impatient, 
they distance their mind and their hearts from who has represented God to them and them to God and Moses. And they've proven themselves as incapable of waiting. It's one thing to be incapable of waiting, and it's another thing to decide what you do in your impatience. So I ask you, what's your go-to when you get impatient? All right. Uh, for me, and this, uh, you know, maybe just in general, I rock, I pace, okay? Um, standing in lines at Disney, uh, you know, Lord help me and all the rest of those people, you know, but, you know, you start, you start sweating, right? And you're like, you're waiting in line and your kids are like, hey, daddy, you can get me a drink, you know? And, and all of a sudden you catch a down, uh, down draft of someone that just walked by you, right? And like all these things are happening and I'm just like, I looked at Heidi a couple times. I'm like, I'm like being majorly tested. I like start pacing, you know, I sweat bullets start coming down. I don't do well in those situations. What happens to you when you have to wait a day, a two, waiting to hear from the Lord, waiting to hear from your spouse, waiting on that job return, waiting to know if this or that is going to come through? What is your go-to? The peoples want to build an idol, as it were. Verse 2, look at this. Aaron, their leader, the high priest, the stud, the guy who God's going to call to lead these people, Aaron said to them, apparently with no discernment, like Aaron doesn't go away in the wilderness and pray about this. Here's his response. Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So we, we don't get a picture here that Aaron has really thought this through. He is, listen to this, a leader at this point that seems easily overwhelmed by the masses. And I'll confess to you that it's hard not to be. Um, one of the things that we strive for in this body, in all of our sin, in all of our failure, in all of our repentance and receiving of grace, we attempt, by God's grace, to lead this church not based on the whims of the masses, but based on what the Lord is calling us to do, even at times if it's not popular. But I'll just confess to you, that's very, very tough. It's very tough to make decisions at times that you know the masses will not be comfortable with. If Aaron stands up to the masses, and you guys remember how many masses there are. I mean, we're not talking about a group of 50, right? Like where Aaron would have to say, you know, that's a bad idea. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people where Aaron would have to stand alone and say, listen, this whole let's make an idol thing, this is going to come back to haunt us, trust me. Instead, in his fear, in his inability to discern, in his going with the masses, he calls for the earrings. That shows us these people are blinged out big time. If they're going to build, as you guys know, a golden calf from straight earrings, we got a whole lot of earrings, right? <laughs> right? And for some of you dudes who have ever questioned, like, whether men can wear earrings, apparently it's fairly biblical, right? Like, here we go. I'm not saying my sons are going to adhere to this, but some of you, here's your text, okay? So Aaron says, take off the rings, bring the, you, the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them to me. So verse 3, like a herd of cattle, all the people, pun intended there, all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This is Aaron's chance. Like, he can get out of the country at this point, Right? You know, you're like, this, would, this would have been like an awesome strategy, right? He has some big sack. He's just like, hey, just, just put it right up in here. You know, I'm going to go back here behind the, the trees and I'm going to burn it. You know, he could have just walked right out. He didn't. Verse 4, he received, look at this. He received the gold from their hand 
and I love this word, fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. A lot of questions from this. First of all, how did he fashion this? Uh, We don't have on record that Aaron was uh, necessarily in the uh, golden calf making business. So how did he fashion this? Well, there's a lot of different thoughts here. Um, I think you'd agree with me the most probable, because all of you are familiar with gold making. He probably built some kind of wood frame, okay? And then as this uh, gold was melted down, maybe he covered it or was able to, you know, somehow he, he fashioned this thing to be a golden calf. The question is, why a calf? A Chick-fil-A would answer this question for us, right? Like, um, brilliant marketing uh, scheme. But I think actually here's our answer. Next uh, slide. This is the uh, ancient Egyptian god Asus. Uh, you'll see the resemblance there. Uh, it's, a, it's a bull. It's a calf. Uh, it wasn't golden, but the Israelites come from a culture that saw this as one of the supreme deities. And again, there were many deities. So they have, rev- listen, they've reverted their heart to their past. I want to make sure we understand something here. We talk very specifically at Matthias about our past. And what we say about our past is we have to celebrate what God has done. And if we just forget about about our past, then we're negating our story. So we're very clear here. You celebrate as hardcore as it was, as difficult as it was, at times as painful as this was back here. We have to celebrate because God has been faithful and done a work. But we are not to revert to our past. The pre-Jesus days of our lives, the pre-Holy Spirit empowered days for believers who are in the room to go back to our past. What does Jesus say? No one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is what? Come on. Fit for service in the kingdom of God. Like anyone who looks back, indulges again in the past, goes back to where things were pleasurable and felt good, those people are not a fit for service in the kingdom of God. How brilliant is this moment? Check this out in Acts 7. Stephen, as he's being stoned in his speech just before, here's what he says about this moment in time. Our fathers refused to obey him, being God, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts, what? They turned to Egypt. Like he says exactly what we're saying now, their hearts collectively turn from one God in Yahweh, they turn collectively to a whole bunch of gods, including this ancient divinity in Asus. And so they say, build us a golden calf, an image that is here, that's present, that's easy to touch. Uh, Stephen goes on saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. Ask for this Moses who led. I mean, Stephen, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, has the, the premise of mind to bring up this ancient story just before his execution. This shows how critical of a moment Exodus 32 is. Somebody, right? So a golden calf certainly has its significance in that, but what else? Well, the people want something easy. A golden calf, you can see, that's what they relished in the Egyptians. The Egyptians had a God for everything. So they could walk out and they could be like, oh, look, the God of the sun. They could go over to the river. Oh, look, the God of the river, right? They could go to the food. Oh, look, the God of food. They had a God for everything, and so it was tangible to them. Well, God 
has been communicating to the people through Moses. And this has become apparently frustrating for the people. This is why we said so much in this journey. If it was frustrating for the people and through Christ you have full access to that God, then what in the world are we getting frustrated about? I was sharing last night at the MV that the beauty of the scripture is seen that it takes faith to believe, but also throughout the Bible there are so many times of logic. And I was telling them one of my favorite, many of you guys have heard me share this, is that 10 of 11 of these disciples were killed because of their faith when through the Gospels they were complete morons. You wouldn't die for something you didn't believe in. They saw the risen Christ. That's logic. And Stephen understands the premise of the logic of idolatry that even in this moment, they have broken the first three commandments. The thing that they said we will do, they now have broken the first three. Of, at the end of verse 4, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, no. So now they haven't just made a golden calf. Now look what. These are your gods, O Israel, who, you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now they're giving credit of their redemption to a golden calf. Listen, can I, can I share? Is that cool? Can I share? One of the most damning things Christians can ever do is give gratitude for your salvation to a man or a thing. One of the most damning things we can ever do as believers is put salvation, the work of it, the understanding of it, in the hands of man. The beauty of our story is that God saves. By his power and for his glory, he saves. You cannot be saved, have relationship with God apart from Christ in any way, shape, or form. And for those of you that believe in other religions or come from different traditions, I have nothing but love for you. At the same time, I have nothing but truth. There is only one way to God, and that is through Christ. It's not through a man. It's not through a different premise, a different idea, a certain kind of ideology that makes you feel good. It is through Christ. And why wouldn't you receive that? Because Christ is the only means of grace. We're called bigots as Christians for believing and loving the thing that the whole premise is love. And yet we're called bigots when we're like, no, listen, everybody, this message is grace. There is no hatred. This is a message that despite all of your wrongdoings, God has done a work through his son so that you can have relationship to that God. So the whole premise of this moment is these people have seen their redemption and now they've placed it in terms of a golden calf. This doesn't sit pretty with God. Verse 5, Aaron saw this. He built an altar before it. I mean, how about this dude? Listen, hold on. We've talked a lot about being ill-equipped at times and you guys feeling like, you know, that, that only the leaders can lead. How about this guy? This guy's the called man of God and he's building a golden calf. This guy's going to be and fulfill one of the first roles of the high priest. Some would say that Moses really was the first, but either way, he's going to be a priestly guy. This is, this is the man of God. I love our Bible. Why? Because in the first six chapters of the Bible, there's rape, incest, and murder. Right? Like, you're, oh yeah, we're really, we're really, man, Noah, he's a stud. Oh yeah, he was drunk naked in his tent with his sons. Right? 
Is that your guy? No. Noah is in the scripture to show that Jesus is the better Noah. Like, like the whole premise of this moment, Aaron, no, Jesus is the better high priest. Even Aaron, the called man of God, is building a golden calf. Jesus, not so much. Jesus, not tempted to do that in this way. Jesus perfectly fulfills the role of high priest. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before. And Aaron, oh yes, in all of his glory, made a proclamation. I mean, let's think about this. And said, tomorrow shall be a feast. Hold on to the what? Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, I've told you before, anytime we see Lord capitalized in the Hebrew, it is Yahweh, yod heh vod heh It's the most powerful word for God in the Old Testament. Uh, oftentimes, even still today, Orthodox Jews, and certainly then, wouldn't even say the word. It held so much power. So what is happening in Aaron's heart? Let's build a golden calf. I'm going to make an altar, and then tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the Lord. Uh, this shows us the depth of the danger of idolatry. We convince ourselves that our idolatry is still for the glory of God. That's what's happening in Aaron's heart. We convince ourselves that our idolatry is still masked or based or the premise of in the glory of God. So Aaron somehow in his mind says, okay, look, I, maybe this golden calf thing isn't so small, but look, we're going to worship God tomorrow in spite of it. When God wouldn't want worship with a golden calf, God would want this golden calf destroyed. The idolatry of our hearts completely purged. You, you guys see what I'm saying? Like that's the beautiful piece of this. Aaron says, no, we're going to have a feast. So verse 6, they rose up early. Oh, they're excited to get up, right? The next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat, drink, and my favorite line of this whole text, rose up to play? Come on, one of your, one of your favorite words when you're like five and, five and six, seven is play, isn't it? Because it was all-inclusive, wasn't it? Come on. Your friend could come knock at your door, and he'd be like, hey, do you want to go play? Right? You had no idea what that meant at the time, but you're like, heck yeah, I want to play. Let's go play, Right? And it could have meant, like, baseball. It could have meant football. It could have meant, you know, just tackling. It could have meant picking up dandelions, right? It could have meant for, right? Like, whatever. Like, let's go play, right? Well, well the question is, what does the word mean here? Uh, today, I went to our staff uh, refrigerator. Maybe the, your uh, workplace is like this. What I've learned about our staff refrigerator is stuff often gets put in there and then stays there, Okay? Um, and so I've kind of become the resident clean the fridge router person, right? And so today, I go to the fridge, because I had been smelling something every time I had walked by recently. And sure enough, there's this little styrofoam nugget of love down there, right? And so it's always funny, because you're going to get a moment to open this thing, right? So open the fridge, instantly smells like someone died in here. And I open this, this styrofoam thing, and it's, I don't even know where it came from, but at this point, it's noodles and mold that have now made like this infestation of maggots, okay? Um, um, so I didn't eat it. Um, <laughs> listen to this though. This word play means to spoil. So the people's heart were interested in getting spoiled, and we're not talking about spoiling a young child with 
good things. We're talking about a heart that's been exposed and spoiled and is rotting. So they wanted to go play. We don't know if this uh, was some sort of sexual pleasure. We don't know what kind of play this was. It was a very inclusive spoiling, but they rise up early. They're excited, and they play. Here comes God, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for, what's the word for what? For your people. Don't you love that? Right? And there's definitely a give and take here between Moses. I mean, oftentimes Moses, when God was challenging him in the early parts of their days in Egypt, Moses was like, they're your people, right? Like, you take care of them. I love God says, you go down right now for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, and for they have a corrupted themselves. Their hearts have gotten spoiled. They started to play and laugh and, and mock and, and toy with. They're, they're, these people have gotten corrupted. They've forgotten. They haven't waited. They're lacking patience. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it. And not just worshipped it, they sacrificed to it. And not just that, they have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I love this picture because I teach people how to read the Bible. And when we teach people how to read the Bible, what we say is, what does this passage say about God? Well, God's like apparently up hanging with Moses on the mountain right? Like God and Moses are having this hang time. What does this tell you about the character of God? Omniscient, omnipresent, let me break it down in layman's terms, he's everywhere all the time, right? Like God doesn't have to like, hey Moses, uh, can we take a time out here in this meeting? I need to go down because I hear some commotion. When you study the Bible, there's these moments where you have to step back and you just have to be like, thank you God. For who you are, I'm just saying um, he's with you while you're looking at the computer screen. Like he sees it all. He sees the adultery. He knows the drunkenness. Listen, he hears the gossip. The same thing that the people struggled with, you struggle with. You feel like because you can't see him, that he's distant. But even in pre-Holy Spirit, dwelling in the hearts of people time, God is everywhere all the time. Right? Um, so I just, I want you to have a moment in your own heart right now. The things that you're doing and participating in, that you've convinced yourself that God isn't there, I just want to remind all of us, including myself, that he is. Uh, thankfully, what my Bible reads in Romans 5 is knowing that we were sinners, right? Like knowing that we would do all of these things, already knowing the grotesque thoughts and the deeds that you would do and I would do. He still died. It's the beauty of the gospel. So uh, God tells Moses, get on down there. Look at this. And the Lord said, verse 9, to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. This doesn't mean bad posture, okay? For those of you guys that think like God was talking in chiropractic terms here. No, this is, this is a notion to their stubbornness. Well, how have they been stubborn? Are you kidding me? 
God pulled him out of 400 years of slavery, has fed them with manna from heaven and water from rocks. They've already conquered a people group. I mean, he has sustained them and brought them in. These same people who have witnessed all of the miraculous, amazing works of God have now turned so quickly. How does this happen? How does it happen, my friends? You are around every single day tremendous amounts of miracles. The problem is you think the miracle is just when someone whose sickness gets healed, when someone who's been saved is the greater miracle. Someone whose sinful heart can somehow be redeemed is a greater miracle than a broken arm somehow not anymore. This is the power that we're around all of the time. And so when you're interested in hearing the stories of people's testimonies, it's a daily constant by the minute worship gathering. That's why on Wednesdays, yes, I eat at El Magui, and I specifically meet with someone on Wednesdays where I just get to hear their story. Why? Because I just want to be enveloped in the worship of who God is. These people are stiff-necked, and therefore, verse 10 this may tell you something about God. Let me alone. This sounds like, like a, a spouse now having some kind of argument, right? God's like, hey, come up and hang with me. Nope, now you need to leave me alone. That my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make. What, what does this mean? Has God negated his covenant? Not at all. He's still telling Moses he's going to make him a great nation. He's not negating his covenant, his promise. What he is doing is he's showing how deeply his wrath burns against sin. For those of you that think that our God like applauds sin, hey, way to go, man. You guys are really sinning well, right? That's not who our God is. Praise be to God, right? Hates sin, abhors sin. He tells Moses, leave him alone. Look at this interaction, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Now you have a back and forth conversation between God and Moses. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger, Moses, please, and relent from this disaster against your people. This is a powerful prayer, isn't it? I mean, God has said, leave me alone. I want my wrath to burn hot. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. Like, you don't want the Egyptians to say, God, that you just brought them out to the desert to kill them. Relent. Uh, if you've ever uh, gotten interested in the Psalms, you're going to see this kind of prayer from David over and over. Fist clenched. Incline your ear to me, O God. Here's God's answer. Uh, after verse uh, 13, Moses pleads a little bit more. Remember Abraham, Isaac, uh, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, Moses continues, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven in all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Here's God's response. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And people say that our prayers do not reach the heart of God. And people say that we have no communion with God. And people say that God doesn't answer our prayers. Or people say uh, that God isn't affected by our prayers. The intimacy of Moses and God on the top of a mountain as a whole bunch of people live frivolously down below 
is that God loves Moses and God loves his people. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for sin. But it does mean that these are his people and that he will continue to lead them and love them even in spite of their sin. So when I was walking with my daughter and she said, I can't wait. This verse uh, instantly popped in my mind. This is David. And I want you to notice something about this verse. He makes a statement, wait for the Lord, and then he recognizes how difficult that is. And so then he says, be strong and let your heart take courage. And then he hits it again, wait for the Lord. I know this is tough. I know it's difficult to be patient. So my question for you is, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Is this what it means right here? Bible right there. And we're all just going to sit in this room right now. Quiet. No one move. Like hands kumbaya style. Right? Every once in a while we kind of like look at the Bible to see if it's levitating. Right? God, we're still, we're still sitting here. We're not going to do, is that waiting? No, Jesus said love God and love people. Well, I can't love someone if I'm just sitting here in my concrete shoes for my entire life, which many Christians enjoy doing. They confuse waiting with laziness. Waiting for the Lord is different from being lazy. Here's what waiting on the Lord means. It means I live and I wait simultaneously. I walk and stay in step with the Spirit of God like we talked about a couple weeks ago. But this word doesn't sit on a chair. This word is my food, the Spirit in me, my director. And so as I pray, I'm waiting for God's answers. As I'm seeking direction, I'm waiting for him to guide. As I'm waiting patiently for him to cover my relationship, I can't wait to see what he will do. My prayer going into vacation is that my kids would learn grace. We prayed it every night with them, and all week long I was waiting to see what my kids would say at the end. And that same crazy Maddox... Of all three of them, at the end, I said, what did you learn about grace? And Maddox got serious for a second, and he said, Daddy, I know that we didn't deserve to go to Disney, but God was gracious. And you know what? For a four-year-old, I'll take it, right? <laughs> it's waiting on God to speak, to move, to direct while we live engulfed with God's word, led by the spirit of God, we sit. Why? We know that it's for his glory and by his power for everything. That's what waiting on the Lord means. It doesn't mean you sit in your pew or your chair in your concrete shoes and you hope for the best and you cheer the other Christians along. It means we are mobile, moving ambassadors of the greatest king that has ever lived and ever will live. And when he speaks in our patience, we know his voice because his sheep know his voice. And we've been waiting on it amidst our life.
And then all of a sudden, the waiting on him leads to a life that finds great passion in following every step that the Lord has. The people's error was that they got antsy. They stopped believing the covenant. They started thinking that God had forgotten about them. And I just want to end tonight by saying, listen, God has not forgotten about you. He has not. He has not and he will not. Let's just sit here for a moment. You thinking about areas of your life where you have wanted to be the hero, you've wanted to take control, you've wanted to be in the driver's seat, you wanted to be the director. You didn't want to wait because you wanted to worship something that was easy, tangible, some kind of object you could hold. Just think about those things now. God, give us strength. God, give us courage. God, help us live and wait. Stir us to action while knowing your voice amidst the thousands of voices in our life. Give us patience, God, to hear your prayers answered, God, that we pleaded to you. Give us courage to sit as long as it takes waiting for your direction. God, tonight, help us as a church, as families, as people. Help us wait on you, oh God.